This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you by Hope for the Day. It's okay not to be okay. Hello and welcome to Dana Being Dana. That's me and I'm thrilled you're with us. My show is about all different aspects of the human connection, things that bring us together, and living life intentionally. Globally, over 800,000 people die by suicide each year, which is roughly one death every 40 seconds, or 20 during this episode. Suicide is the second leading cause of death in the world for those aged 15 to 24 years, with depression being cited as the primary reason. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-TALK, or 8255, and you are encouraged to call at any time for any reason. Joining me now are good friends of mine, Doug, Erica, and Carl, who each have a unique connection to this topic. Doug, let's start with you. How you doing? I'm great, Dana. Thanks. Good. What is your connection to suicide? Well, my connection is uh, I have family experience with suicide, very close. Um, it's taken a long time to be able to talk about it comfortably. And uh, it's been 26 years ago my brother died by suicide. Um, and how old were you? I was 18. Um, I was a senior in college, or excuse me, a freshman in college. Um, my brother was a sophomore in high school. Wow. Um, and about a year before that, uh, he had let me know he wanted to die. Like, we were on our way to school, and he said he wanted to kill himself. Wow. And it wasn't one of those, something happened and he's just off the cuff. It was something different. And he said, don't tell your parents, or don't tell our parents. And um, of course I did. Good. My parents sought help for him. Um, about a year later, he had his 16th birthday. I was in town um, and uh, we celebrated his birthday over the weekend. I had gone back to school and gotten a phone call that he had passed away. And everything that happened that day is pretty uh, memorialized in my, in my memory, um, uh, along with you know, you know, the experience he had and sharing me his feelings. It's, yeah. It was just you and your brother, right, in yeah. terms of siblings? Yep. He was my only sibling. So I want to talk about the impact, because you said this happened 26 years ago. And I think right. the impact to the loved ones um, who've lost someone to suicide is so impactful. Um, because it's such a shock, such a surprise. Can you talk a little bit about that for both you and your family? I think mostly for my parents, um, it had incredible impact um, on the, their lives. My mom passed away a couple years ago, uh, but there wasn't a day, I think, that went by where she wasn't in pain, um, even though you'd never know it. Like she was the most happy, boisterous, loving woman. Um, but it had impact on the rest of my family as well. My, my dad experienced some mental health challenges himself. Um, and he, a couple years after my brother died, he, you know, he couldn't be an engineer anymore, and he didn't continue working. Um, so <clears throat> financially, that had a big impact on, my, on our family. Um, and then certainly, the relationships we had as well it took a long time to be able to, to talk about it where it wasn't a painful scenario. Erica, what is the first step to recovery? Um, it depends on where you are in, in, in your cycle of illness. For me, the first step was understanding what were my triggers. Um, and then from there, understanding how to um, kind of catch them before they really hit home and took over. 
So understanding what mental illness is, understanding what depression even means. Um, when I was diagnosed, I, I knew no one in my circle or family who had struggled with any type of mental health challenge or rather, should I say, uh, have been diagnosed uh, because now I understand that several people have different challenges. Um, so recognizing it for what it was, um, being able to educate myself around it, and then acquiring all the tools and resources to ensure that I'm always living a life of wellness. And if not, I know exactly where to go to fix that. A life of wellness, I love that. I think the statistics around suicide are startling. And I remember growing up uh, thinking that suicide was a white issue. Right. Mm. Um, a lot of minorities think that it's just, it's just white people who right. commit suicide, and that's actually not true. Right. Self-reported suicide attempts for black adolescents rose by 73% between 1991 to 2017. 73%. That's right. In comparison, Self-reported suicide attempts for white adolescents fell by 7.5 over the same period. period. Suicide rates among black girls ages 13 to 19 nearly doubled from 2001 to 2017. For black boys in the same age group over the same period, rates rose 60% to become the highest suicide rate among any other racial or ethnic group. Carl, you are from Hope for the Day. I love what you all are doing. Can you tell us about Hope for the Day? Yes, well, Hope for the Day is a nonprofit. We're based out of Chicago, established in 2011 by someone named Johnny Boucher, who started the organization after the suicide completion of his mentor, Mike Scanlon. And we now, I joined in 2013. Uh, I'm a suicide survivor multiple times myself. And together, Johnny and I built an organization that is doing something we call practice suicide prevention. And the goal here is to start the conversation on mental health before it adversely impacts our lives. And we do that through outreach and mental health education programs. So you'd say suicide is a preventable mental health crisis? Yes, we believe it can be. Yeah. Uh, the goal is to sort of break this sort of silence. We have this kind of culture of concealment. And when people talk about stigma, that sounds like a buzzword, but really it's just the things that make us not talk about mental health in day-to-day -day lives, whether that's culturally or socially, fears of judgment, shame, et cetera. I love the tagline, it's okay not to be okay. Um, Hope for the Day is doing incredible work in this space. Can you tell us specifically what is proactive suicide prevention? Our goal is to get people to learn how to start conversations on their mental health and support others to start conversations at the earliest signs and symptoms of mental health challenges, not wait to crisis stage. A lot of our education and traditional approaches to suicide prevention are focused on basically the signs and symptoms when people can't hide their mental health challenges anymore. And we want to normalize the conversation so that when people start to recognize, you know, learn signs and symptoms, to recognize at the earliest stages, they start to reach out for support before it escalates to a crisis stage. You want to normalize the conversation. I yeah. love that. Yeah, I think that's one. so important. So tell us about Sip of Hope. So, you know, if our whole culture is about sort of wanting to disrupt the highest risk factors for suicide, Sip of Hope is this social enterprise that's based in Logan Square neighborhood of Chicago. That's like the full realization of proactive suicide prevention. It's a coffee shop. It serves dark matter coffee. And we're in a space where you walk in and mental health is normalized 
from the second you walk in, from resources right in front to the languaging on the board to a great barista staff who's trained in both mental health first aid type education and how to be sensitive to having conversations. And it's really a community space where we want people to feel like they belong and it doesn't matter from what intersection you're coming from in the community. So all of the baristas are first aid certified mm -hmm. and mental health care certified. Um, well, so mental first aid is is the would be the certification Got level it. and we're trying to always provide education so that they learn how to have conversations because not everyone fits the same the same brand and sip of hope well 100% of the net proceeds go to support hope for the day's work it's also a place where you walk into that store and you can take the resources and have conversations there but you can also take them with you out of that shop into your own community spaces yeah. Doug I think it was so courageous of your brother to reach out and to tell you, you know, how he was feeling. And I think your family responded well by, by getting him services and getting him the support that he needed. Oftentimes, particularly young people, are afraid to reach out. They're afraid to say something. Um, there were some statistics I saw where it said veterans, like a third of veterans um, have suicide ideation. Mm -hmm. Why are people so afraid to reach out, to say something, um, to take actions that could save their life? Well. I, you know, I talked about stigma, and again, that sounds like a buzzword, but the fact is is that uh, the quickest way to explain it to someone is that for the longest time, centuries, millennia, whatever, we've been led to believe that our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, our mental health, was something that's 100% our control. So that if your life is disrupted by things that could have a genetic basis or you are traumatized, it's some failing on your part. And that's passed down. So the personal shame, we stay silent, but this was passed down culturally, you know, ethnically, uh, just as a point of social, you know, where you are as a man or woman. Uh, all of it makes us feel like we're not supposed to talk about it, that we should feel ashamed, and that's sort of what compels it. And it takes different shapes, whether it's being African-American or being wealthy or being an executive or, or being a parent uh, or student or child. There's also all different reasons, but it boils down to just feeling you're not supposed to talk about these things. And a lot of time, we don't even have the language to have mm -hmm. the conversation. The I mean, literally, it's like if someone is speaking Spanish to me and I don't know Spanish, I can't communicate with you. And so one of the big things that, um, that I try to do when I speak around the country is to just begin to educate folks. Uh, this is what depression is. This is what it looks like, signs, symptoms, treatment options, so that people can then begin to identify, oh, that's me or my sister or my cousin or my grandmother. And then we give them the avenues to the resources so that they can get the intervention that they need. It's so much more common than people realize. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. Well, oh, I think man. from a family perspective, too, there's uh, a, a sense of shame, right? Like right. you should have known something or done something yeah. about yeah. that. Um, and that's the really hard part to deal with yeah. as, as a parent or a sibling or anyone that's close to someone who, who dies by suicide yeah. is, why, how did I not know? Right. And, you know, it's really hard to get past that. Right. I didn't yeah. tell anyone either. I mean, your brother, he reached out to you. That's yeah. huge. That's epic. Yeah. I didn't tell anyone. It wasn't until I tried to drive my car off of a cliff behind Stanford's campus that my friend said, okay, wait, this is a serious issue. There's something going on that she's not sharing. And right. so they intervened. And then my mom flew across the country and brought me home and we began the work that's taken, I don't know, roughly 30 plus years. But I was too afraid. I was terrified. What are people gonna think of me? But, but bigger than that, you know, which is something that a lot of people don't understand is what does that mean that I now think of myself? 
because for forever I've been this prized kid in the family yes. and to say that not only am I hearing voices but that I want to kill myself and the voices are telling me to do that how do you wrap your brain around that you know how does my family do that but then beyond that how does the world look at me that then causes me to look at myself like I am what we call the c-word that I'm officially now crazy right and that's right. kind of you know why it's so critical for our education piece is why we lead with it's okay not to be okay right. is because of this fact that you know reducing suicide rates isn't just about building a safety net under a bridge or having a lifeline it's being able to learn how to start a conversation for yourself that's not just silencing you and that can't be done with just a commercial or just a big you know billboard it's something that has to go house to house family to family peer to peer and it's something that you know through our education work and even through things that would Erica does, it's kind of designed to give people the tools to learn, okay, fine, maybe I have something wrong, but there's people you can trust out there. That's right. right. And if you can just get that into your head, it's okay not to be okay, that makes it easier for someone to speak out, whether it's to, if you feel like your domestic situation is in safe space, maybe it's an academic situation, maybe it is calling right. a service, you know, that's displaced because it's not easy to talk to someone in your community because it's still stigmatized. In other countries, suicide rates have fallen while they've increased in the U.S. Why do you think that is? Well, one thing I like to say is that um, if you don't have the language, you don't have the education, you can't reach out for help, first of all. But then there has to be a lifeline on the other end of that. And so often um, within urban communities, inner city, underprivileged, underserved communities, the resources are being snatched away as fast as you can take your next breath. And so if I'm in distress and you tell me uh, that I have to get on three buses and then take two trains to get to the nearest mental health facility where I can actively begin to get help, I'm gonna look at you like you have two heads. <laughs> I'm gonna be completely transparent right now. If I'm in distress and it's a struggle for me to get out of the bed, much less take a shower, right. I'm not gonna do all of that. And within our communities, the resources are dwindling at a ridiculously fast speed and it is scary because if I begin to say okay thank you for the education now I want to go get the help and it's not available to me within a reasonable way then I'm not gonna do it and that's just the reality of it um, and then the other side of that a lot of the children that I deal with are traumatized and they've been traumatized since they were young and they don't even know what the word trauma means and so that's generally a predecessor of some sort of mental health challenge if yes. it's post-traumatic stress syndrome or just depression anxiety all of these things and these children don't get the intervention that they need and then they turn into functioning adults that are still very sick and then they perpetuate the cycle so it's a matter of catching it when they're young and we're talking about the same thing we're talking about intervention and education so that it can be preventable for generations that come after them yeah and it's you know with different countries the variance between different countries and, and whatnot it's really prioritization we don't <coughs> prioritize mental health economically, you know, different levels, but even across the board, whether yeah. you're affluent or impoverished, we do not as a social policy and institutional policy prioritize mental health when it impacts every single nuance of our living lives. Every know, single nuance. Every, every every bit. I mean, pe it's true. I, I'm not a fan of just people saying, well, the economic impact of mental health is. But the fact is, is how can you be a productive laborer? How can you be a pro productive student? How can you be a productive parent? Son, child, you know, take Everything. any role that you have to take on in society. Right. If your mental health uh, creates an obstacle that makes it impossible for you to function on a day-to-day -day basis, that's everything. That's, Very much that's so. everything.
And so, educating the family is a big part of that. But once mm -hmm. they do that, then we have to have insurance to pay for it. Right. I mean, there, it's, there's so many variables in this equation toward wellness that you can't just touch on one. There are several. And our country, unfortunately, is behind the eight ball. It's okay not to be okay. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Thank you. This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you by Hope for the Day. It's okay not to be okay. Welcome back to Dana Being Dana, where we have been talking candidly about suicide prevention and awareness. As we mentioned earlier, depression is the leading cause of suicide, and one in four people <laughs> report a mental health crisis in their lifetime. So I want to spend a little time talking about mental health. Before we do that, I want to introduce my friends, Andre and Kamisha are professionals in the mental health space, and Roger is a volunteer for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline with over 10,000 volunteer calls logged. How are you guys today? Great. Wonderful. Good. Thank, Thank you so much for joining me for this important conversation. Roger, can I start with you? Can you tell us sure. about some of your more memorable calls? After 10,000 calls, you can imagine there are hundreds. Uh, but let me relate one that just happened just a couple of weeks ago, which is indicative of, of what happens and why I keep coming back. A, a, a woman called me. She started the conversation by saying, I'm done. I just can't do it anymore. I'm, I'm over. I'm, I'm, that's it. Turns out that she had been suffering from depression since she was a child, and she just couldn't do it anymore. So she said, I'm done. We talked for a few minutes and I said, I'm struggling to find words that would help you make the decision to go on. And we talked some more. She told me her counselor told her that every person has a purpose. And she said, you need to find your purpose. And the caller said to me, I'm not sure that's true. I said to her, I said, I don't know if that's true either, but here's what I do believe. I believe that each one of us gets up every morning and we have the ability to nudge the world in a small direction, maybe hundreds of times every day by interaction, interactions and the things that we do. And I said, over the course of a lifetime, millions of ways in which we nudge the world. And I said, um, if you believe in the butterfly effect, some of those small little nudges can change the course of human history. And I said to her, I said, we need you with your talents and abilities to, to be here to help us nudge the world. And she said to me, she said, that was it. I said, what do you mean that was it? She said, a few minutes ago, you said you were struggling to find the words to help me go on. She said, that was it. Found the words. She said, I was determined to go home tonight and self-harm. And she says, now I'm not. Oh, Roger, the work you do in this space is so incredibly important. I feel very lucky to be able to. Bless you, bless you. And you two both um, work in that space. As professionals, what signs do you look for um, to determine whether or not someone may be suicidal? And what advice do you have? One of the things that I look for is hopelessness. If someone indicates that they um, don't feel like there's anything to live for, or if they're feeling like their situation just can't change, um, or if they are still um, 
experiencing severe depression, um, that's one of the things that I look out for in addition to a social support system. If someone feels isolated or feel like there's no one there to support them, that could also be an indicator that they might feel like they want to take their lives. Um, for me, I look for risky behavior. Sometimes when people engage in risky behavior where they put their lives at risk or others' lives at risk, that can indicate that, you know, there is a sense of urgency there. Um, that Here are we, some examples of risky behavior. Um, risky behavior um, could be like someone who's engaged, um, like say, in a gang or something, and they say that they don't care about living and they continue mm -hmm. to, um, like, perhaps catch, like, you know, um, get in trouble with the law and they continue to um, escalate more and more and more their risky behavior, whether it's gun violence, whether it's, um, you know, putting themselves in harm's way where there is a lot of gun violence that can indicate risky behavior. So um, that's one of the things I look for. I also look at changes in um, physical uh, health behavior, like where someone uh, is dressing a certain way and there and there are individuals who are in their lives notice that there's an apparent change where they're looking disheveled and everything um, that can indicate that there's some um, points of uh, depression and everything that may lead to suicidal behavior or intention I think just asking those questions about what's going on can impact the lives of many and I think just any other behavior changes as well. It doesn't not just close, but if you know someone well and suddenly their their behavior is changing in some way, they're sleeping in differently, they're in a bad mood more frequently. I speak in a lot of high schools and I tell the students, look, if you see somebody in the hall who's just sad, it never hurts to just walk up and say, Are you okay? Yeah. Sometimes that's enough. That's true. That's true. And on the flip side, there are highly functional people. Um, <clears throat> who appear or seemingly have good mental health. And so I want to stress the point, and we talked about this in the earlier segment, is that highly functioning doesn't necessarily equate good mental health. And I think sometimes people believe that uh, although they may be troubled, that they're okay because they're accomplishing or they're doing or they're working or they're you know, doing all the things that uh, people do who don't have any mental health challenges. Can you spot when people are in denial about their mental health? And then what do you say to people um, who are in denial about their mental health? Well, I don't think you can necessarily uh, spot someone just right off that's in denial. I think having um, real conversations with individuals and talking to them and seeing uh, the choices that they're making right. kind of uh, puts a sheds a light on what they're doing and can point a light on unhealthy behavior. I think some it's so stigmatized, uh, especially in the black community, that um, mental health or seeking mental health is something bad. It's almost like taboo. And really, um, destigmatizing is a way to uh, reach people and help people get services that's, that can be impactful in their lives as well. 
I would also say one of the things that I see, um, I provide services mostly to black women and feeling so stressed out. Um, they might be high functioning, they might be taking care of their children or their parents or their spouse um, and they're working these jobs where they might have these high positions but they feel like there's no way, there's no way to get a break. Yeah. And so that's something that I've seen. I actually had um, a client recently who um, felt like that. She's like, she works at this really good job. She was the breadwinner of her family, but she just felt like she couldn't take it anymore. Um, and so I think that's something that sometimes people don't necessarily pick up on with high functioning depression, but in the women that I see, a lot of times it feels like there's no way out. Mental illness, they say, is a spectrum. And there's varied levels of, of mental illness or mental health crisis. Do you agree with that statement? And if so, at what point does it become suicidal? Well, certainly there are, you know, we talked about sadness. I mean, it can go all the way from sadness to suicide ideation. Mm -hmm. So I think definitely there's, there's a, you know, and I, but I don't want to be careful not to say that sadness is a mental illness, right. but I do think it, I do think it is a spectrum. Yeah. Um, and at what point does it become suicidal? I think it's, it, it probably differs a lot from person to person as to how much sadness, how much stress a person can take before they, they call us and say, you know, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. Um, I also think it's important to be aware of mental health conditions that can be more vulnerable to suicide. So like depression being one of them, but also um, bipolar disorder or um, some people who might have a substance use disorder, all of mm -hmm. those things, all of those conditions are also more vulnerable. So um, being attuned to if someone has those particular conditions, making sure you have an eye out if they have either self-harm or have attempted suicide in the past and also trauma history as well. Um, someone who might have an extensive trauma history yes. um, can also be more vulnerable to um, engaging in self-harm behaviors or having the idea that they want to um, plan to end their lives. How does one's environment contribute to mental health? I think there's many different things, different factors from um, cultural uh, differences and everything. So, you know, a background that might have a lot of violence and different things, um, just in the community, that might contribute to in mental health. Or the community. Yeah. 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 And as well as uh, cultural differences in family and family dynamics, they may contribute depending on if uh, someone feels that, you know, um, they're in the, in the family dynamic that they don't feel like mental wellness is even um, something that should be considered uh, in their family, so they avoid it or different things like that. So, you know, it just depends and it varies from culture to culture and the individuals within it. I got a call from a young man who was a senior in high school a number of years ago, and um, I was so taken by who he was becoming, and I won't bother you with the whole story, but who he was becoming and what he had overcome in the, in the middle of the call, which I, I don't often say this, but I said, you know, I, I love who you are and who you are becoming. And the senior in high school started to cry. I asked him why. He says, you're the first person who has ever said to me, I love you. you. So, you know, how does, how does home environment affect it? Yeah. So many calls I got, we get, from people who, from the very early ages, the Absolutely. only messages they've ever gotten. Were negative. You don't matter. Yeah. You're or important. you're wrong. Yeah. You know, not only you don't matter, but you're worthless. Right. Right. So it matters a lot.
Kamisha, can you tell us a little bit about your organization and how we can make mental health care more affordable? Yes. Um, so my um, organization is Sister Afia Community Mental Wellness, and we approach mental wellness from a community support standpoint because I've found in so many experiences of others is that the community support is what is the lifeline for people to be able to thrive, and particularly within um, the African-American community. And one of the things that we do is we make our services low cost, um, almost one-third of the market rate of most uh, therapeutic services wow. so that people who might um, need therapy, they don't have to necessarily get an insurance plan, but they're able to come to us for a reduced cost to remove that barrier because one of the top barriers for people accessing mental wellness care is cost. So if we were able to remove that barrier, then more people are able to get services and to get support. Um, and then we also approach things from a culturally relevant standpoint. So um, we like have a book club going on right now called a book club and therapy called literary healing um, and historically uh Book, club, book clubs have been helpful for black women. Um, so bringing the culture and also mental wellness together, but from a community support standpoint, because we're all we got. It's so important, and I'm so proud of you and all the things that you're doing. What would you say to somebody who's watching us right now who's having suicide ideation or who has had suicide ideation? I would tell someone it's not just you. Um, you need to seek a professional. You need to seek some assistance, you need to tell someone um, what you're experiencing because no one will know what you're experiencing um, like you unless you really uh, voice it. And it may be scary, but there's plenty of people who experience suicide ideations. The point is that you can help your situation. You can get out of that situation. You know, you just need to ask. And, be brave, and sometimes it's just not even a matter of being brave, but sometimes it's just a matter of just wanting to get out of that situation because it's very hard. It's a burden to bear, like a burden to carry. Um, I would say that your life is worth living um, and that there is promise for you in the future um, and in the present and that um, it's very scary right now, but there are uh, resources such as suicide hotlines, um, counselors and organizations that can support you um, and that your life matters and you deserve to live. Yes, thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you being here, for sharing, for the work that you do in your respective communities and just for people who come to you. It's, it's so important. Um, so you. keep doing what you're doing. Never forget that the primary obstacle to suicide prevention is silence. Suicide is a topic that we need to talk about. Too many people are suffering in silence, believing they are alone. And too many people are taking their own lives as a result. I am passionate about us checking on each other, having tough conversations, and showing up for each other in meaningful ways. This is proactive suicide prevention. Again, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800 273 talk or 8255 and you are encouraged to call for any reason at any time. Thank you to all of my guests for joining me for such an important discussion that impacts us all. Hopefully you have been entertained if not encouraged or inspired. I do not promise to be an expert nor do I have all the answers. I'm just Dana being Dana. See you next time. <laughs>